Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It is good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Zach Smith, author of the story collection entitled Everything is Totally Fine. For me, for now, yeah, the most... I've gotten out of writing has been my relationships to people, my experience uh, like creating with them, like collaborating on things or goofing off on writing projects with people or putting together this and this book or my, my book of poetry and thinking of it as something fun to do and then trying to ensure that the experience of making it and everything else that comes after it is also fun because otherwise what's the point? Okay, that is Zach Smith. He is the author of a new story collection entitled Everything is Totally Fine, available now from Moo Moo House, which is the indie press founded by author Tao Lin. Everything is Totally Fine is the first book that Moo Moo House has put out in about a decade. It is a collection of very short fiction with an acidic sense of humor dry deadpan apocalyptic often surreal and absurd and depressive it is a collection that is responding to a world and to cultural value systems that seem to be either in collapse or completely out of whack zach smith's other books include two million shirts of which he is the co-author, and a poetry collection entitled 50 Barn Poems. That came out in 2019. One more time, the new story collection is called Everything is Totally Fine. My conversation with Zach Smith will be happening momentarily. 
Today's episode is made possible by Atria, publisher of Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. This is the new memoir from best-selling author Mary Laura Philpot. She has been hailed by the Washington Post as, quote, Nora Ephron, Irma Bombeck, Jean Kerr, and Lori Colwyn all rolled into one. With Bomb Shelter, Mary Laura Philpot returns with her distinctive voice to explore our protective instincts, the ways that we continue to grow up long after we're grown, and the limits, both tragic and hilarious, of the human body and mind. Bomb Shelter is a poignant and powerful new memoir that tackles the big stuff, life, death, existential terror, and it does so with humor and hope. Glennon Doyle calls it, quote, unforgettable, and Danny Shapiro calls it, quote, powerful and beautifully written. That's Bomb Shelter, by Mary Laura Philpot, available now wherever books are sold from Atria. All right, so I have to thank some people for pre-ordering my novel. I have a new novel coming out. Did you know that? It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available as of May 10th. It publishes on May 10th. That's coming up. But you can still pre-order it right now if you want. Thank you to Kelly Johnson, Jonathan Wimmer, Kevin Wolk, and Jeff Little. I appreciate it. If you're out there and you're thinking... Wow, I'd love to pre-order Brad's book. You can do that at bradlisty.com. Use whatever online bookseller you prefer. It's all right there at bradlisty.com. I also want to let you know that I have some events coming up surrounding the launch of my new novel. On May 9th, I'll be at Chevalier's Books in Los Angeles in person at 7 p.m. Pacific. On May 12th, I'm going to be doing a virtual event in conversation with author Chelsea Hodson for Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn. That's happening at 7 p.m. Eastern. On May 17th, I will be doing a virtual event for Exile in Bookville in conversation with author Leah Dietrich at 8 p.m. Eastern. On May 24th, I'll be doing a virtual at Booksmith San Francisco in conversation with author Matthew Clark Davison at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then on June 5th, I will be in person at Stories Books in Echo Park here in Los Angeles for an autofiction reading series hosted by Caitlin Forst. For ticketing and RSVP information, go to bradlisty.com slash events. Look at the events page on my website. It's all right there, all the links. Please RSVP. Come say hello, either in person or online, and help me celebrate the launch of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Speaking of which, I should let you know, too, that listeners of this podcast will be getting a special, exclusive sneak preview of the audiobook edition of my novel. This is the first time any part of my novel will be made public, and I figured I should share it with people who listen to this show. So that is going to be going live this Sunday. I'm going to be posting the first chapter of the audiobook of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything right here in this podcast feed. So you don't have to do anything special. It's going to show up in the podcast feed. You can listen to me reading the first chapter of my book. I am the person who reads the audiobook, which will be available on May 10th from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio, a division of recorded books. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, uh, just a brief, uh, brief health update. I have been battling COVID. <laughs> on top of my knee injury, which I talked about last week. For those of you who did not listen last week, I broke my kneecap in France on a vacation with my 11-year-old daughter. I was on a bike tour at uh, Versailles and somehow fell off my bike, 
Don't ask. I have no idea how it happened, but I broke my kneecap. I thought I broke my wrist, but I don't think I did. I think I'm going to get away with an okay wrist, but I have to have surgery on my knee. And then on top of it, like right after I posted last week's episode, I tested positive for COVID. And I had to deal with COVID all this past week, which was not fun. It was pretty intense. And I felt very uh, glad to have meds. I took Paxlovid and to be vaccinated. I feel like it could have gotten a lot worse. Uh, It was not a simple thing. It was a big, bad virus like they've been telling me. So I feel better now. The good news is I got it on Sunday, tested positive on Sunday, and I was negative as of Thursday. So I processed it quickly and I'm definitely on the rebound, but I'm still dealing with my knee. If for some reason the knee surgery that I have to have impedes my ability to podcast, I will let you know on social media. But otherwise, I'm going to be stubborn and I'm going to keep trying to get episodes up, regardless of this dumb injury. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So that said, it is now time for the main event, my conversation with Zach Smith, author of this new story collection entitled Everything is Totally Fine, available now from... Moo Moo House. I had a nice time talking with Zach, meeting him, hearing about his life, his work, and his approach to fiction. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's do this. This is my conversation with Zach Smith. And one more time, his new story collection is called Everything is Totally Fine. I'm in what's called Metro West Boston. It's sort of a small town area to the west of Boston, sort of on the on the commuter rail that goes out here. Boston's got a pretty good metro. It's a beautiful day. I'm in my office, which is a mostly painted white room uh, <laughs> with a white desk. And it's got one window, and outside the window I can just see the edge of my chicken coop. You have chickens. I do. I... I 
just as of uh, this past weekend, got a few more. So we just uh, got some, they're called pullets, which are basically teenage chickens. Okay. Instead of raising them from chicks, you can buy uh, partially, <laughs> partially raised chickens. So we have two um, out of the original four we got last year. And then uh, we just got the three more little ones. Okay, so are you like killing these chickens and eating them, or are you just taking no, the eggs? Just taking the eggs. Uh, a weasel came maybe a month and a half ago and killed two of the original two, but otherwise we planned on <laughs> on keeping them. And what about yeah. the winter in Massachusetts? Don't they freeze to death, or you get a coop? No. I guess. And yeah, I mean we've got a pretty good setup. So we've got a lot of hawks and weasels <laughs> and other stuff in the area. So we keep them in a covered run that's like surrounded by hardware cloth, which is like that metal like woven stuff. They have a little hen house that you lock up at night. Uh, in terms of the winter, you winterize the whole thing by wrapping it basically in a, like um, shower curtains or plastic wrap. Interesting. <laughs> and, uh, we got a special waterer that plugs in to a, so it's got a little heater, heating element in it to keep the water from freezing. Okay. And you're from Massachusetts? No, no. I only moved out here five years ago. From, like where from, are you from? Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest. I grew up in Ohio. Okay. As am yeah. I. I mean, not from oh. Ohio, but I'm from uh, Wisconsin and Indiana. Oh, okay. So. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was in uh, Southwest Ohio, so sort of near Dayton, about an hour and a half from Indianapolis. Oh, yeah. My sister went to UD. Oh, okay. Yeah. Back so, in the day. I've been did there. Did you ever spend time with her? In the ghetto? That's what that neighborhood <laughs> was called, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Dayton's got a lot of interesting parts to it. Yeah. I don't, I didn't know anyone who went to UD, but... Uh, I used to, I was in a band in high school and we'd play a bunch of clubs around, uh, like the Oregon district was the sort of like fancy downtown area. There's some other parts to it. What kind of band was this? Oh, just like a shitty indie rock band. <laughs> what was it called? Oh, uh, it was called, <laughs> it, was, it was one of those bands with a really embarrassing name. It was called Of Brothers and the Bear. Of Brothers and the Bear. Yeah, we were, we had a hard time finding a name and we were named after uh, my one of the guys in the band was weird. It was MySpace friends with this other band that turned out actually to get kind of popular just a few years ago called Hop Along. I don't know if you've heard them. No, um, but I mean that's that that's not any indicator of anything because oh, I sure. haven't I haven't heard of much. <laughs> they were on like college rock radio maybe I don't know four or five years ago for for a little while. Uh, but before that they were they had a they were called Hop Along Queen Anne's Lace and yeah our our guitarist was like Facebook friends with them and they had a song called of my brothers and the bear. So then I guess we just lifted it for, for our, our band. I've, I mean, I've heard worse. It feels a little poetic. <laughs> I mean, it feels a little mysterious, you know, but, uh, yeah. that's cool. And was it, uh, like, how did you get into writing? If you're have this musical background, were you like a literary kid? Is this something that you've been tracking towards for a long time or did it come as something of a surprise? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I guess I've, I've always enjoyed reading and I liked having writing projects. But I never really planned on like making a career of it or seriously getting into publishing books until a few years ago. My my brother, my older brother was a was an English teacher, so he was pretty like influential. I remember he gave me a bunch of Kurt Vonnegut books when I was in eighth grade, and you know tried to like I think for the better supplement my my reading list throughout high school with cool stuff. And then um, I'd been a pretty big reader from that until I went to grad school and then I kind of like stopped reading for a few years because uh, you're supposed to just like read science articles and textbooks and stuff. Wait, 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 got... wait, what did you go to graduate school for? Uh, linguistics. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. What is what is that really like? Explain <laughs> this to me. I'm not smart enough to know what that even means. Like, what is uh, linguistics? Yeah. Like, you're it's the study of language. Language. Yeah. It's like, so it's got a lot of different parts to it. I was interested in what you'd basically call the math of language. So it was like probably the the least interesting part of it, which was where you're thinking of language in terms of like equations and logical frameworks to try to like come up with like the like a formal representation of of what's shared across languages. Whereas a lot of people get into it because they like like learning languages is a pretty common into it. So they want to learn a lot of languages and they see the patterns, they like them and then they want to learn more about them. But in terms of the impact on writing, I mean, maybe I, someone asked me about this before and I tried to think about it. I think my biggest takeaway is that I was sort of disillusioned with linguistics a lot. And I think a lot of people who don't study it can sort of imbue language with a lot of the sense of magic that I don't really think is there. <laughs> and so I don't really, uh, I think that might have influenced me to write more like like a more of a minimal style. It's a it's a strange thing language when you stop and think about it. Like <laughs> yeah. these sounds that we make with our mouths and how yeah. we you know they represent certain objects or feelings or whatever it is, you know, it's a Yeah, I mean there's a lot of cool stuff to it. I you know, I was really into it for a while and you're right. I mean, it's a really big I think like a really cool big cognitive leap when you think about it is that most of things in language like words and are arbitrary so there's a big thing with the arbitrariness of the mapping from the word dog to what a dog is you know there's nothing about the the sounds in the word dog that uh, has any concrete relationship to what a dog is and so every language has its own word for dog you know so i think that's that's just like a little uh, that extends further to other stuff there's nothing really inherent about necessarily about like the word order of a sentence or how one language has its word order versus another that uh, has any concrete like reality to it. It's just a, <laughs> it's just like historical happenstance. I now find myself getting fixated on this notion of who the first human being to utter the word dog was. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, like the origins of these words. And then I'm also fascinated by, like you talk about the math of language and how there are certain patterns that repeat across different languages and you know you can find these common patterns or whatever but what's interesting to me thinking about that is where the gaps are you know like what are patterns that are completely specific to english for example for things sure. things that are not repeated in other um, languages and then i think of like you know it's like you hear these stories i'm going to be just making something up and it's like <laughs> you'll hear about some indigenous language that has no word for hate do you know what i'm saying like they don't even yeah. have the concept and that's fascinating to me like it's not even part yeah. of their reality because it's not part of their language yeah that's uh yeah people yeah get really into that stuff and that's you know one of my favorite thing is when people talk about pronouns in different languages so there's languages that have you know different sets of pronouns based on the noun class like you know in, in the, the like latin languages you've got masculine feminine and neuter sometimes but you know there's languages where they'll have a separate you know noun class and pronouns for things that are round versus things that are like flat and stuff like that it's really cool hmm. does this help you learn foreign languages like do you speak multiple languages i don't <laughs> it probably it probably should but i never really uh got into it. i i got into linguistics through spanish and then i sort of once i got like competent enough at that I realized it didn't really like what drew me to it was the linguistics part of it and not like the meeting people 
<laughs> or like having conversations part. <laughs> I don't want to connect. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, like what you do with it afterwards? Are you like an academic now or? No, no, I dropped out in the middle of writing my dissertation and I just got like a, a boring office job. Okay. That was sort of only tangentially related to linguistics. It was like for a, a tech company doing uh, like conversation stuff like uh, machine learning. Got it. Like AI stuff, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So you said that there was a, a time a few years ago when the switch flipped and you started to take writing fiction more seriously. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about that? Like what was going on when that happened? Yeah, I had a... I was coming out of grad school and realized I was like in really bad mental shape. And when I, when I left and got my first job out of it, you know, it's like a whole lifestyle change where, yeah, I think everyone's got different experiences, but at least for me, I felt like I, at grad school, I was always supposed to be working. And when I wasn't working, I'd feel a lot of guilt and I felt like I couldn't um, pursue my hobbies or interests that much without feeling like I was just using them as some sort of like, procrastination measure, which I don't think was super healthy. Uh, and so when I got like a nine to five, um, you know, we moved uh, out here for it. So we were living somewhere else and I just had a new daily routine and like all this pressure fell off. And I just started like finding myself with a lot more free time and like commutes on the train and stuff uh, or even just walking around. And so I just got back into reading in a big way. And that just sort of like re-inspired the spark in me to engage with literature. And then you know, I'd always, I think I'd always kind of wanted to to write. I remember enjoying my creative writing class in college and I was in like a writing club in uh, in high school or in middle school, but I never really did it super seriously. But then I, you know, found myself, I was like, I've got this nine to five, I clock out at the end of the day. I've got all this extra like time and, and you know, personal freedom. And then I just started writing uh, something for fun. And so I wrote like a whole novel that sucked and then I wrote a whole nother novel that sucked and then I started um, getting into writing short stuff and sort of trying to find what I really wanted to do. And that and, and that worked in ways that the novels so. did not. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Do you know why? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I think like looking back on it, I still kind of struggle with the, with the idea of writing a big novel because I think there's a lot of artifice to it in terms of... I don't know, when I found myself like trying to write a novel, I keep thinking like, oh, okay, what kind of like structure do I need to impose on this? What kind of beats that do there need to be? Do I need to like foreshadow things and have twists and all this stuff? And it all feels really artificial to me in a way that, you know, everything like, you know, writing is an act of artifice and, you know, fiction is artificial, but yeah, something with the structure of a novel felt kind of limiting to me to that, to not to say that like all novels are the same, but at least for me personally trying to approach it, I, it, I can really connect on it. Well, these, these stories feel very personal. Like they could only have been written by you. Uh, sometimes I read fiction where, I mean, a, a, like everybody's got their, their thumbprint on their work. I don't mean mm -hmm. to say that it's like, you know, you could trade one for the other, but this definitely feels unique. And Thank you. I think uh, one of the things I could say about it is that I feel like the act of composition is present in the telling of the stories. Mm -hmm. I could feel you creatively, like as I was reading, I, I could feel you working. And mm -hmm. I don't know, 
I don't know how much truth there is to that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if that's, <laughs> if that's how it actually was or if that's an effect that you achieved, like through revision or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think so. I can feel the act of your mind making the story up on the page as I go in a kind of live wire way that I don't always feel mm. with a story. There's something kind of uh, like almost improv or um, performative about it. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. I think it was definitely for me. I think it's a mix. So, so the question is like, was this achieved as a sort of like after effect in the editing or something there as part of it? For me, I uh, feel most inspired when I, yeah, like improvise while writing and take what pops into my head and try to get from where I'm at to that new place in an interesting way. Yeah, something that I found myself doing and, and wanting to like recommend to people as advice that uh, I remember like some people being like, that's a weird thing to, to put it, <laughs> weird way to put it, but like, uh, like leaning into something. So like, you know, you have this idea and you're like, oh, I should, you know, what if I do something sort of like postmodern where I talk about the writing of the story and the story, but you're like, well, I'm going to do that and I might as well really, really do it or something like that. Like you can't just, uh, at least for me approaching it, I wanted to not just say like a little bit is enough. I wanted it to be like the, you know, if the story is going to be so short to begin with, it's got a few things that it's trying to accomplish. And if I'm going to lean towards one, I should really go for it. And so for me, and I think part of it because it was like my first collection of stories or my first attempt at like really writing a bunch of stories on similar themes that I just the idea of writing stories <laughs> was like going into it, you know, that was as much of it like the act of writing was as much of an influence as uh, anything else that went into it. Yeah, there's kind of a like there's an informality at times to the delivery. And like you said, you'll comment on the actual writing of the text within the text. Mm -hmm. You'll sort of pull the rug out from underneath yourself or from underneath the reader in a way that is, I think, comedic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the intended effect. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think, too, you're also kind of taking the piss out of like capital L literature, which can take it, we all know, can take itself pretty seriously sometimes. Uh, yeah. Is that is that accurate? Like, did you do you find yourself bristling against some of the more self serious um, parts of the writing life and stuff that you'll see on the page? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think you're right on on both counts. I mean, I I really like humor. I really like funny things. <laughs> it just sounds stupid to say, uh, but it's true. And so that's going to be present in in whatever I, I I started writing. And yeah, you know, I think. You know, I like a lot of really serious literature. I like a lot of really uh, important books, you know, quote unquote important books. You know, I most of what I read when I got really back into reading was just super dark, bleak, you know, like Norwegian stuff where people die for no reason kind of stuff. And um, <laughs> freeze to death. Just... Yeah. You know, there's this great one by uh, Kersey Scomswold, and there's this really crazy scene where it's basically about this old woman. And she's like by a lake with her dog and she sees some kids and she's like, I want to impress these kids. So she throws a stick into the lake and she's like, go get the stick dog. And the dog swims out and then just never comes back because it drowns. And it's just like <laughs> such a <laughs> like purposelessly dark uh, scene. And uh, 
like you know that kind of stuck with me and, and you're laughing at it because it's such like a terrible scene to include and so that kind of stuff i think you know getting really into really heavy things and then wanting to <laughs> still find something funny in spite of that or about that i think you know went into it but yeah you know i think there's a lot of like uh pretension that goes into a lot of publishing or, or people approach it i think thinking what they have to say is really important or that they're going to be the next big novelist or something. And that never really spoke to me. I think that's kind of a silly approach for me personally. I can see myself doing that, but I understand, you know, everyone has different purposes for their writing or what they're trying to achieve. But yeah, I feel like most like popular writing or best selling writing is either like, you know, genre stuff. That's just sort of like whatever fluffy thriller or this like really self-serious, like sad New Englanders, you know, having an affair or something. Uh, and that didn't really feel like something I wanted to write. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I felt depression pretty heavily in this book. And I felt like the book was, like the text itself was a reaction to that. And kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but, you know, you try to write these funny things. And when we talk about funny and we talk about humor in this book, I should note, that this is like really acid humor. Like this is <laughs> this is as dry and as dark, I think, oftentimes as humor gets. It like just and there's a very kind of deadpan delivery to a lot of it. But I could feel I could feel it that way. Like this is a response mm-hmm. to a pretty messed up world and to somebody who is struggling with depression and trying to make sense of it or stay like keep one's head above water amidst it all. Mm-hmm. And I relate to that. I don't see how you can't relate to that these days. Like things have gotten so intensely fucked up yeah, in so many different ways that you almost have to, you have to use humor as like a, a kind of armor. Like, am I on the right track at all? I mean, you mentioned earlier that after grad school, you were in kind of a bad way, um, you know, mentally slash emotionally. Like, was this book written as a, as a, as a way of, trying to kind of find your way out of that or is that overstating it no yeah you're right yeah i think you read into that um correctly yeah a lot of it you know i want to say yeah like a lot of it the stories or the seeds or the stories predate like the pandemic and everything else that's sort of been going on but uh yeah you know it was a, a good chunk of it was me sort of process this depression i was dealing with and i still you know see the or experience the after effects of a lot so yeah for a while there like some stuff I, I pulled from previous attempts at writing through it in different ways. So throughout the 
throughout the years, I had sort of accumulated little snippets of me trying to communicate something or explore something related to related to depression and different like, you know, just negative thought patterns and experiences. And then in working on the book, I would like I work on anything, I would go through these old snippets and try to see if there's anything worth or or something I could pull out and, and, and recontextualize in the, in this project. And so, yeah, it's sort of a merger of like, uh, a larger, this is like a refined, this book is sort of a refined body of stuff pulled from a larger array of different approaches to writing about these kinds of things. And, yeah. be, and because they're so short or most of them, you know, most of them are a page or two or three long. Mm-hmm. Were you writing them in one sitting? Like, would you get a draft out in one sitting and then noodle with that for weeks or months or whatever until you got it where you wanted it? Yeah, I tried. I think for me, I wrote it in a lot of little bursts usually yeah that's a good question i would i remember distinctly trying to sit down and being like i need to write like five stories today or at least get the ideas down and then sort of iterate them on uh, on them as a little set for like a week or two after and then do that you know a whole bunch of times uh and then slowly start pruning everything and then um making it make sense as a full collection but yeah for me i at least Personally, if I, and this is probably related to me trying to write longer things too, like while writing, once you get into that headspace, I will think of, I'll I'll, I'll feel more creative bursts and things I want to include or I want to write or I want to get to in this piece of writing. And then like, if you're writing a novel and you're like writing on chapter three and you're like, oh, in chapter 10, I want this kind of thing to happen. You just have to like leave a note for yourself because you don't really want to interrupt what you're writing. But then if you go back to it, like the note really makes sense or you've lost that passion. So for me, I wanted to, I found it effective writing them small enough where everything that I wanted to do in that story, I could do right then and there. And then it was just a question of uh, making it sound better or making it work out. And were you writing on the train? Like what was the, did you have mm-hmm. like a, a pattern to your work habits that emerged or was it just kind of whenever you could do it? It was... It was mostly at home, like at night. Like I, I remember sitting in my bed on my laptop a lot, like uh, just before bed. Yeah, I didn't really write on the train because I, I know a lot of people write on their phones or on paper or something. For me, it's easiest to write with a like a laptop keyboard. I think the idea of writing in bed makes some sense to me as I reflect mm-hmm. upon this collection. There's something like loose and relaxed about it mm-hmm. um, in its delivery and unselfconscious and i don't know i hear stories of writers who write in bed and i'm like that make like yeah just relax <laughs> i'm at a stand of course i'm at a stand-up desk i'm like the worst oh. offender of all i'm like standing upright and you know in some sort of formal posture but yeah. it's like yeah shouldn't you be in a relaxed state when you're working like it wouldn't that make for a better creative output but i uh I don't know, because these stories, they work on a lot of different levels and they come off, they're, they're the kinds of stories that come off sometimes in a manner that can trick you into thinking it was maybe easier to write than it actually was. Um, though, though maybe some of them were, I have to imagine some, <laughs> some of them probably came out hot and fast, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I get this question sometimes and it's kind of, I never really know how to approach answering it. Cause it's like either like. Oh yeah, you know, I just sort of bang some stuff out and put it on a book, and the joke's on you because you bought it, uh, <laughs> or you know. But no, I, 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 uh, I guess what I wanted to include in the final versions of everything was that 
energy that went into writing the original part. I mean, a lot of them have changed pretty drastically from where they, they first were, but that might just be a reflection of like the, uh, uh, like the, the beats in the story, I guess. Like, cause those are the things that more often than not would come up in the writing itself. Like to think like, Oh, this is a good opportunity to include this image that I've been sitting on or, uh, you know, this, this sort of turn or this effect that I've been thinking of. And I'll just put it here and I'll just go with it. Well, and it's, it's difficult, I think, to sum up the way in which a story or a piece of fiction emerges, especially in the mm-hmm. digital age, when there are all these iterations that live on your hard drive. And, yeah. you know, not only has the story or the idea or something been swimming around in your brain for months and months or even years, but then you've kind of noodled around on your phone or on your computer and in files that you've probably even forgotten about, you know? And so oh, yeah. then you get to the final draft and somebody says, well, that must've just shot out of you. And it's like, well, not, <laughs> maybe, I mean, it's like, it's interesting because I do think that a, a lot of the time the best work comes out of us quickly because we're mm-hmm. not second guessing ourselves and we're working in a moment of some kind of uh, vision or inspiration. Right. Like there's a logic to that, to get like, to that sure. moment. It's like, like playing music or something. I don't know if, if, if you have experience playing music, but I remember like, I don't know, being in seventh grade, playing the violin or something for the school orchestra and having those moments where you're fully out of your head and you're just playing it as like, you know how to play it. Uh, and you don't really feel yourself looking at the music or, or thinking about what you have to do next. And you get into this, this like, yeah, this unthinking, confident sort of groove and that's what I wanted to try to channel in writing a lot of these. I, I think you're right about that. So when did you start to get feedback? Like you start, you start, I mean, you've written a lot of stories and what, what are there, 69 stories in this collection? Yeah, yeah. And you've got them bunched into different sections. There's a section called Everything is Totally Fucked. There's another section called Everything is Totally Fine. And then there's a section called Everything is Normal Life. I'm imagining that that like the the sectioning happened late in the game, like once you sort of started to sequence them, right? Or did yeah, this... yeah, okay. And then what about like with with 69 stories and a lot of them kind of working in flash mode? Did you start sending them out like well before you thought about a collection? And were you getting feedback from people who were reading online or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. A few of them for sure started out as just one or one or two off stories that I uh, would then send out to places. I think like maybe the oldest one was published on Hobart in like 2018 or something. And then I, then I, I brought it back um, when I was like trying to finish the collection. I thought, you know, maybe I could tweak this a little bit and make it fit the rest of it. So I think a few of them started out that way as, yeah, just like standalone things to get out there. And then, uh, the real genesis of it was I was trying to, I originally wanted to write like basically a, like a chat book, like maybe 10 stories worth uh, with my friend Giacomo, who was doing it with poetry. And we were like, we're going to put this out as like an online thing. And then uh, we both ended up just writing more <laughs> than our target. And we we're like, you know, we should just make something else with these. Um, so, uh, yeah, then I, I think, feel like pretty early on I was writing these things with Giacomo and I was writing them sort of, uh, I'm in like a, a Twitter group chat with some people and then every, you know, sometimes one of the guys in there will post, uh, 
basically like writing prompts, but just like a collection of weird images <laughs> that don't have anything to do with one another. And we would take that as an opportunity to write and screw around. And I was sort of channeling this approach to what I wanted to be a collection and writing those. And so I'd use those as like a kind of a sounding board. Cause there's definitely something about, you know, once you s- give something to someone to look at, you start looking at it differently. You know, you, you, as soon as you push send on it, like if you submit something to a journal or even in an email or a message, you immediately go back and read it. At least I do. And you're like, oh, uh, I should have changed that sentence. Like this word's wrong. There's a typo there. And so that was a, to your question about feedback. Yeah. That was a good way for me to like bounce these things off really quick and get that, that second step where you, you, you yourself look at it differently, uh, pretty quickly. And then I would just like pull them out of the, <laughs> I would copy and paste them from the group chat and stick them in, in word docs. I, I didn't have like a hundred stories of which 50 were like online. Uh, and then I compiled, I, after I had like maybe 10, I was like, I want this to be a collection. And then I just started yeah, pulling old stuff into it and writing new stuff for it and trying to see how I can make it work. And how did you wind up with Moomoo House? I remember I had a, what I thought was a pretty good draft and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I only had a short list of publishers that I'd, I was interested in working with. Uh, and I'd gotten a couple of rejections from places. And so I'd independently been talking to Tao because uh, we, because um, I published one of his poems in this like digital zine I'd made at the start of the pandemic. And then we just sort of been like talking off and on because I've always really liked his writing and, and his curation at Moomoo House as the website and as the book press. And then after a while, I was just sort of like, you know, I feel like I'm not making much progress on like, getting this out to being published. And I just asked him to like to take a look at it. And that was also around the same time that uh, I sent it to Yuka when she was with Soft Skull, who I didn't know at the time was Tao's partner. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he later he was like, yeah, I read, you know, like the excerpts or whatever when you <laughs> when you send it to Yuka. And then, yeah, so he gave some encouraging feedback. And then we just like talked and stuff. And I didn't really have any expectations about him restarting Mumo house for it. Cause I just like, I'm sure he, one, he gets that all the time. And two, like, um, you know, I, I didn't want to like position our friendship as me trying to like get something out of him. Uh, but then it was going to come out with a, with a small press called house of Vlad, which I really like, you know, he's, uh, it's mostly run by this, it's run by this guy named Brian, uh, Brian Allen Ellis, and he's put out stuff by Bud Smith and Sam Pink and sure, Noah sure. Cicero. Um, so it was originally going to go out with him. And then uh, uh, just sort of like in the meantime, talking to Tao, he was like, you know, I think I'd be interested in publishing it if you don't think Brian would be too upset. And I was like, I'll, you know, I'd love that. And I'll ask Brian. And he didn't really mind. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to plug House of Vlad right now, sort of as reparation, sort of make it up for him. But yeah, you know, it was Tao's idea and I was like, you know, I can't really say no to that. I think that's a great, like, you know, it's <laughs> sort of a historical thing. And, you know, he was, uh, Tao was one of the people I, you know, I started writing, uh, reading a lot more once I started getting back into reading. And I remember reading his books, you know, way back before grad school. And so he's always been sort of like a literary icon for me. Cool. And this is the first book that Moomoo House has published in a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And like so far, like, and this is your debut, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I had a book of poems uh, at the end of 2019. Yeah. It's my first fiction book. First fiction. 
and so far so good like is it is it what you expected <laughs> did you expect anything i you know i didn't have any expectations you know i coming from like small press publishing i you know i don't think you really should have any expectations i think it's just about putting together something that you feel good about and then if anyone reads it that's like a bonus <laughs> uh so it's been uh, i i didn't want to come in with expectations but um you know, it's been like pretty well received from people that I wouldn't expect to, you know, be interested in it. Like and, who? Uh, just like a wider audience <laughs> for one. You know, I think it's like a, you know, it was reviewed by the LA Review of Books, which I didn't expect. Uh, and Michael Silverblatt from Bookworm uh, wanted to do an interview. I'm sure all that's just because it's related to Moo House and it being sort of a historic thing. So, yeah, just in general, you know, I, I'm used to coming into things with being like, okay, maybe like these 20 people that I'm like kind of friends with on the internet might read it, they might review it, they might talk about it. So it's been it's been cool seeing people who I don't know like post a picture of the book or uh, or message me about it. I was going to say I think this is like a common thread with authors that I've speak you know spoken with on this show over the years and. It makes some sense, but the like one of the most rewarding parts of publishing, which can be a pretty like humiliating experience in general. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no part of writing and publishing that doesn't have some element of humiliation in it. I think, but then, you know, you do the hard work to put a book out that you feel good about, that's yours, you know, for whatever it's worth, and then you get feedback from family and friends which is always lovely but you never fully trust it because you <laughs> they you know you know they love you and they're never going to say anything mean yeah. but it's the messages that you might get from somebody who's a complete stranger where yeah. the book has landed and that's nice cuz you know it's authentic and it's also just the like the magic of a book going out into the world and finding somebody like how did they even like track it down you know and yeah i don't know that is that does that square with your experience, like in terms oh, of the, the, like the rewarding part of it? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think first and foremost, the rewarding part is just like having done it and, and putting it together and then like seeing it as a physical thing. I think it's good. You know, my friend Giacomo made the design, the cover and it's his handwriting. And I think it looks beautiful. Just like the experience of working on and editing it with Tao and, and um, working on it with, you know, my friends, like through like trading manuscripts and stuff. Yeah, I think all that whole process I think is really fulfilling. And then you're right, like, you know, hearing that a bookstore put it on a shelf, <laughs> you know, like that's something that I'd never experienced before. Because you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of small presses, you know, just because of how distribution works, especially if they use like a like a print on demand service, they're not gonna, no one's gonna put your book in the in a bookstore. So you know, that experience, like seeing it on a shelf, or or yeah, people who don't know who I am. You know, taking a gamble on it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, kind of humbling and exciting experience. Yeah, like seeing a physical book, like a picture of your book out in the world. Yeah, that That's... you didn't put there yourself. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> that you didn't stage for the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is the first book I think that I'm aware of that references my podcast. <laughs> the podcast does get a brief mention in your book, which I feel obligated to mention yeah. and here's a question for you because i can't you know i can't remember the exact passage verbatim mm -hmm. but it has something to do with a, a writer talking about you know suffering through cancer treatment and then 
what's the phrase? Something about glass. Uh, uh, a statue made of glass. A statue made of glass. And then like I, I, I repeat the line basically to my guest. And my question for you is like, is this real? <laughs> Did you make this up? I don't remember my own podcast well enough to know if there's any truth to what is on the page. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful question. I did not expect that. <laughs> uh, no, it's, I made it up. It's not real. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, no, good. Because I was like, I, I felt like, wow, I, I, you would think I would remember somebody suffering through cancer treatment. And it can, uh, it can be disconcerting to think that I would have forgotten. So I'm glad it's fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that was... <laughs> that's funny i'm sorry um yeah you know that was something that I, I i do a few times in the book that to me is personally really funny and i, I it's it's funny to me seeing how it translates to people where because you know there's like this big the big buzzword right now is auto fiction and people writing basically telling the truth but then saying but this is fiction i think it you know i obviously love a lot of autofiction and, and a lot of autofiction writers. Um, but then you can think of like the opposite where you write something that's false, but you present it as true. That's like, what is the difference in effect there? And so in this book, yeah, a few times I like invent a, uh, an episode of other people with Brad Listy. I invent a story by Zachary German. I invent a, a song by Pedro the lion and yeah, to me, it was just like sort of a fun uh, approach to to writing fiction because it just made me laugh a lot. <laughs> well, and there should be a sense of play, you know, yeah. like even in autofiction, in any of it, like you have to give yourself some permission. And I, you know, especially if you're working in a comedic mode, like I think that's like I can imagine how much fun that would be you know <laughs> yeah are you are you okay with being in the book no i'm flattered i'm flattered i mean <laughs> you know the fact that it that it inched its way into a book i mean you know that's uh i wear that as a badge of honor somehow okay, you know um but i you know i sat there reading it going god did this happen <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect see that's ex you know ironically that's the i don't know if it's ironic but that's exactly the kind of effect like you want to get from that but then for you to have that experience, I think is even better. I, it would be even better if Zachary German was wondering if he actually wrote the story <laughs> you described. Yeah. <laughs> so sketch comedy is an influence on you. And I think it's worth talking about because of like the performative aspect of these uh, fictions that I was talking about earlier. Like that, I read that as I was prepping that like you're a big fan of sketch comedy and that made some sense mm -hmm. to me in terms of the way these things are delivered. Can you, you just talk about your consumptive patterns like culturally and like, oh, can, sure. can you trace like the DNA of this collection into <laughs> maybe other art forms that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah. You know, I, I want to say I never have like done comedy. I've never like been in an improv group or a sketch comedy group. I think that takes a, a, type of talent that is far beyond me but i think for whatever reason as a kid you know i think maybe my parents watched saturday night live and i remember staying up with them and watching that and then as a kid i remember watching a lot of tv like daytime comedy central where they would just show like kids in the hall or uh or stuff like that that stuck with me and uh i think it would have been probably like high school and college when the whitest kids you know was on TV, and uh, like Adult Swim stuff started taking on, uh, blowing up. And I remember, like, being really taken by the original Adult Swim approach to making 
cartoons, which was like similar, like really fast and loose and they would improvise stuff and they would include like, you know, voice actor laughing <laughs> about how ridiculous the line was and the animation is really crappy, but that had a big uh, impact on me. I think was, you know, similar to a lot of people my age who watch a lot of TV as teenagers. So yeah, all that kind of stuff I think has influenced my approach to humor, if anything. And then I think that's definitely bled over into treating stories as these like little vignettes as these scenes similar to like a sketch in a sketch comedy show where, you know, it doesn't really temporally, they all take place within like a, you know, a, a, a five minute scene, like in real time. So I think that has been a big influence. And then aside from other like books and writers, just another big influence on me was this uh, web comic that used to be around called um, Pictures for Sad Children whose author disappeared a while ago and, and just came back. And I think her name is Simone Vale or Simon Vale. Um, now I think she transitioned after originally writing the comics. But they were like, uh, they're these really um, like black and white sort of stick figure characters, especially towards the end. They got really bleak and dark with these like, uh, sort of morbid themes and a more experimental art style. And I remember getting really into them in college and like, you know, I wanted to do a, I ended up doing a comic strip for my college newspaper too, sort of similarly influenced like these sort of static black and white uh, comics that were focused on dark humor like that. So it was, it's sort of like a similar thing. Like you can tell a whole story in just like, you know, six panels or three panels or whatever. And so that was a, yeah, that was another big thing I would say. Like, I in writing the stories for this book, I wanted to channel that sort of how those comics made me feel a lot, uh, as well as other writing and some sketch comedy. Yeah, that I mean, I love hearing stuff like this because you know you put the pieces together and the sum total of it is Zach Smith's approach. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I mean that uh, as a compliment. And mm-hmm. as a kind of directive, like to myself, you know, like <laughs> you have to pay attention to what moves you uh, mm-hmm. artistically. And like, these are obviously the kinds of things that you should be trying to emulate. And then I love this idea of amalgamating these disparate influences into your own little literary style. Now, if you're a writer, you want to say like, oh, my influences are other writers, period. Or like maybe a movie or something. But, you know, we're influenced by everything you know we're influenced by weird conversations you have or you know um pieces of art you know that you see in a museum and i think it's you know that's where at least for me like i get that where you know you think of like i don't know, maybe maybe this isn't that common but sometimes i'll think of oh you know there should be this kind of music that's like a mix of this and that but you know maybe there's a reason it doesn't really work or maybe or someone's tried it and so this is why they just stick to these kinds of genres where the idea of like taking influences from things that aren't writing and putting them into your writing sounds kind of hard, but I think it's pretty natural. Uh, it, it probably happens to everybody, but maybe I'm just a little more cognizant of it. Yeah. I don't know. I like, I think about it. It's like, I, I think maybe we all have these influences for sure. We all have the things that we like. I question whether or not everyone is trying to actively understand why we like the things we like. Like, what is it in this comic or in this sketch comedy that was so 
effective, you know, for you or whatever. And then how might Mm -hmm. you translate that into literature? And I think too, so much of the art world is, is mimicry. It's like looking at what's working or looking at who's popular or having some sort of vague sense of like what one should be doing because this seems to be cool right now. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it can be easy to get caught in the drift of that. I say that, I mean, I'm as bad about it as anybody. (laughs) When you do that though, I think it's a losing game. It's better to pay careful attention to what you authentically like, which is, I think what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. And that goes back to, you know, I feel like a lot of really popular literature does that. It's like, you know, this is because that comes from what gets published is what's marketable is what's selling uh, people trying to get on, you know, these. Uh... Is that a chicken? <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> They're uh, she might be laying an egg. Um, uh, they make certain egg laying noises. Uh, <laughs> um, what was I saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's easy to see like, Oh, this is what the New York times bestseller list is. And it's all not all, but you know, there's a lot of these themes, uh, a lot of similar kind of books. And I think there's something to be said about people who get into writing. I was just talking to Tao about this. I think there's, for me, like culturally, it feels like being a writer is a very, uh, uh, like cool sounding career that I think like in like, I don't, I'm trying to think like, like rom-coms, like, the character who's the writer is like fashionable and metropolitan and like wealthy, <laughs> uh, you know, people get into it like, Oh, I can write stories. I'm going to write a book. I'll be a bestseller. I'll make a lot of money. I'll be cool and hip and I'll live in New York city. Um, but the reality is like, that's not really the case at all. And I think people often overestimate their abilities. So I think like maybe in, in publishing is unique to this, but I might be wrong. Like, I feel like there's, the category of person who's like, I want to write just because I want to be a writer and not because I want to write. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think people want the identity, you know, and the cultural cachet. Cause like, it is weird. It is a grossly underpaid profession. <laughs> people are mostly living in poverty or subsidized in one way or another to be able to do this. Uh, yeah. But if you publish and if you have even like reasonable success publishing, it does carry cachet, like in so, like social. Uh, it does have like a social impact. I find people respect writing, even though they might not be readers. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, yeah, that's the I feeling mean, yeah, of I think it. There's like this cultural sense about it. Like, oh, when you think of writers, you think of I don't know uh, Stephen King or whatever, whose job is to write cool stories and make millions of dollars. But there's that leaves like a lot of the field open, you know, right. like, what about all these writers like, you know, you and me and whoever else who are maybe left of center or making, like, I call it like making smaller music. Like Stephen King, is, <laughs> Stephen King is playing like arena rock, right? Like <laughs> that's what he's doing yeah. and he's really yeah. good at it and like power to him. But like, there are also like the weirdos in the cafes playing the ukulele or whatever. And yeah, you know, that there's gotta be room for that too. And I just think that uh, there's an odd, I, I, I've noticed that same odd dissonance between the way the, the job itself is perceived versus the way that it's actually appreciated or not by the culture. Yeah, and I think there's just a lot of like misconception, especially when people start talking about 
like how big an advance can be or something like you know like even just like the the payment structure of an advance like if you get a hundred thousand dollar advance which doesn't really happen that often but say you do that's split out over like three years and a huge chunk of that has to go to an agent and all this stuff and if you like break it down like the average person on the you know the number two or three spot on the new york times bestseller list for one week is like making less than like thirty thousand dollars a year or something <laughs> for like three years <laughs> you know it's not really like a, a glamorous career you, know, you can find all these articles about people basically bankrupting themselves because they're successful authors because they pay out of pocket for their own publicity you know they traveled all these conferences and stuff and then they don't sell the second book and they're like where they started but then yeah they're carrying this baggage of like but you're a successful author <laughs> you know how'd you screw up so bad yeah you're like a hit at cocktail parties but yeah. like you can <laughs> barely like keep your electric bill paid or whatever <laughs> it's a it's a crazy situation and uh you know you said there's that part of it and i think there are writers who just want maybe more to just be the right like be a writer with a capital r or whatever you know then yeah to actually do the writing and it sounds like you're in it to do the writing like you like the act of writing i think so i hope so uh yeah i mean i get into it because for that i mean I, I will admit to being similarly deluded when i was trying to write these novels and think like oh i've got something here i should like find an agent i should do all this i didn't know how anything worked and then looking back on it i feel pretty embarrassed uh, i think that's normal and I'm sure I'll feel differently in like a year or two years about my relationship to writing. But for me, for now, yeah, the most I've gotten out of writing has been my relationships to people, my experience uh, like creating with them, like collaborating on things or goofing off on writing projects with people or putting together this and this book or my, my book of poetry and thinking of it as something fun to do. And then trying to ensure that the experience of making it and everything else that comes after it is also fun because otherwise what's the point? Well, okay. I mean, that seems like a lesson, like, taking, <laughs> I mean, not in a corny way either, like coming away from this project after two failed novels and a depression and all the rest, like, oh yeah, it should be at least a little bit fun. Why is it so <laughs> fucking hard to remember that? Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's so much of it can be a grind and, you know, I think maybe especially uh, so it's a grind when you're humorless, you know, like maybe that's an indicator that you should take a step back and quit taking yourself so seriously. Like if there's not some element of fun in the act of creation, it's probably a bad sign. Yeah. Like, why are you doing it? You know, it's, it's a pretty common, like, it's a pretty popular sentiment, I think, to be a writer on the internet and complain about being a writer, about not wanting to work on your book and, uh, you know, feeling frustrated by yourself, but it's like, you just, you don't have to do it. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it, we've already established it's not a good job. And you know, you, if you're doing, if you're writing because you don't like your other job, like, why are you treating this like just another job that also sucks to do? But there is something sort of insane about the writerly impulse I found anyway, is that it's hard to turn off. Like, so even when the writing is a struggle or it's not coming easily, like, even if you want to quit, <laughs> it's hard to quit. Like, I, I, you know, I think people who have this impulse are sort of cursed with it. Like, if you really yeah. have it, you're, you're sort of stuck with it, I think. Yeah, it could be. You know, I, I still struggle with, like, thinking I should be working on something new 
where I need to figure out what my next thing is going to be. But also, you know, this, that creeps in, but then I have to tell myself, like, I, you know, I've got other stuff to do right now, or I'll do it if I want to. I'll do it if something comes to me that feels worth pursuing. You know, the, you know, I, I've written a lot of stuff that's never going to be published. And I think that's true for, for every writer. Again, I think it's just part of this, like, uh, image issue where people think like you just write one book for five years and that's like your contribution and whatever. But like, I think if you're a writer, it just means you write and you write something stupid for fun or you write something big for fun. I think it should all still be for fun. Yeah. And I think too, like you just have to reconcile yourself with the fact that like, as you move from one project to the next, there's probably going to be like a a period in the wilderness. It's just part of it, you know, not yeah. only where you don't know what comes next, but also where you're just writing bad shit for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in my experience, like, I think there's definitely something to be said, like once you finish something off, you like the reason you were working on that and hewing away at that is because that's what you wanted to do. And that's what you felt like you, where you could accomplish something. And then when you finish that, you have to find the next thing. And so you're definitely, yeah, like it's reasonable, I think, to feel sort of lost because you don't want to just do the same thing over again uh, that you did before, you know, for whatever reason you want to try to like push yourself or grow or mature or, uh, or experiment with something new. But, you know, if you don't have that next thing lined up, yeah, I think it's it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm washed up, I'm a hack, I'm never going to top this or whatever. But also like I don't, think you have to top yourself i think you know i don't think anyone has to publish a book i think even publishing one book is an incredible feat i think just writing for yourself or for your friends you know i think like to that point you mentioned like influences or whatever you know i have friends who don't want to be writers or publish books but who still write and will share their writing with me and you know i would do the same and i think that's like people don't talk about that. I think so much. I think people have to think of like being a writer is this role you fill and it's got these certain parameters to it. But I think that scares people away from just sitting down and writing a short story for fun, even if they don't think of themselves as writers. Yeah. I just got asked in an interview that I was doing, like somebody was interviewing me and it was like, well, how do you deal with the hubris of feeling like you have something to say or something like that? And it got me thinking like, why, why do we (laughs) feel obligated to like put these things out into the world like isn't it enough to just like write it and show it to your friend or something (laughs) like yeah but yet it's not it's clearly not because we're all (laughs) putting these books out in the world trying to communicate with a broader audience I guess um yeah I don't know yeah and at least for me like I think it's it because if you know I like reading books I like reading about books I like learning about how books are made and all that stuff. I think when you contribute a something, when you contribute a book to the community, like or publish something, like that's you sort of commenting on what you see and what you want to see. And at least for me, like I felt inspired to write by a lot of these small press writers, or like you said, left to center, whatever, small music people. And that's been a positive influence in my life. It's been a positive change. Like that got me to want to write. Uh, and if it hadn't been published by someone, then I wouldn't have seen it. And so like, yeah, I guess it's it sort of sounds self-centered to be like, my writing's going to inspire somebody to, <laughs> to, you know, do something to do their own writing. But, you know, my 
small experience like that has been the case. Like people have reached out to me to say that. And that's really big. Like, I think that's a, a big enough accomplishment. And unfortunately I think like getting something in some publishable state is the, is the way to do that. And the question is then like scale and what will satisfy you? You know, would you be satisfied with a hundred good reviews? Would you be satisfied with the review in the New York times? Would you be satisfied with just one stranger telling you they like your book? I think it's the personal question. I think it's the last one. I mean, yeah. All that stuff is great, especially if it's good reviews. You know, you're going <laughs> to like, you're going to, it's going to make you feel good. It's just the way it works. But I think if you hear from somebody like we were talking about, who's a complete stranger, who was moved by it in a positive way, and especially like you said, who was inspired to create their own art as a result of it, like that's, that's an excellent outcome. And it, it, it's a, an echo of the thing that got you writing in the first place. Right. So it's come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important to, for people to try to keep, you know, putting stuff out there that's not the the typical normal marketable stuff because it gives hope to other people who maybe feel there's no room for them in literature. Well, yeah, and, or it, all, and, it, and it also helps the thing kind of grow and mutate in cool new directions. Like we can't all be sort of uh writing toward the center you know what i'm saying like there's got to yeah. be people working on the fringes and there have to be people willing to make a fool of themselves or do something completely strange or you know all that kind of stuff and i feel like this book has that kind of fearlessness to it in that sense and uh kudos to you for that thank you <laughs> thank you yeah that was at least to that last point that was like a, a sort of mission statement i had is i wanted to write things that um, on paper were, were as stupid as possible so that I wouldn't take myself too seriously. Like I wanted I wanted to make myself feel more comfortable with the chance that people would be dismissive of me or my writing or think it's not serious or think it's stupid. And so for me, the best way to do that was to make it often as stupid as I could. Okay. Uh, I, that made me feel much more confident. Okay. So no, I, this is an important point. Because I feel like as a reader and as a writer, but especially as a reader, I, I always, I call it like the cool thing. Like hmm. narrators in popular literary fiction, you know, literary fiction that resonates critically or commercially or some combination, um, they're almost always really cool. <laughs> There's like this kind of Teflon feeling where you can feel them inching up. I can at least feel like the narrator or the author inching up to the point where they might expose themselves as being uncool. And yet they pull back from it and they're awry and knowing or self-protective or they deflect or they don't go where you wanted them to go because it would have been too revelatory. D does this make any sense what yeah. I'm saying? And oh yeah, so, I'm with you, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, I, I that's a, a big thing with me. Like I don't wanna be cool on the page. I don't want to be cool. Like I know, <laughs> I know that readers sort of like it. It's sort of nice to have like a cool narrator narrating at you mm -hmm. who's like smart and Teflon or whatever. And there's just no, I don't know. They just have that control. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, uh, that's not the way that I feel as a human being. <laughs> I'm not cool and I'm not, I'm often not in control. And, you know, I think you just yeah. got to, if you put the mess down, I think sometimes it can, you know, hit people the wrong way or it can make people go, Oh, I didn't want this. I want the cool guy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But I like, I like that it's uncool. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're onto something. Yeah, people like the, and they like publishing. And they like reading. Yeah, about these sort of, like, uh, like yeah, wry, witty. You know, they'll uh, they'll have some opinions. They'll listen to cool music. They'll hook up with people. Whatever kind of thing. Um, and I think especially in writing too, because you know it has this air of being like a super intellectual pursuit it's only for really well-read studious smart people or whatever that i think people i mean people in general have a fear of being uh misunderstood or or dismissed or or being considered like unintelligent or uneducated and you know i personally like something that bothers me the most is where i feel like i've been unable to communicate myself well enough and someone misunderstands what I'm trying to say, um, you know, in like interpersonal things or like a work context. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to be able to be like, uh, you know, none of that matters. I don't think writing books has to be for people who can, you know, who studied the great Gatsby for a dissertation or whatever, who could tell you about all these really important cool books and all the imagery and symbolism in it. Like, you know, I, I think it should be sufficient for some books to be like, this is just a really silly thing or you know, something else. Like, I'm not saying my book is like the best book, but that was an approach I wanted to have where I, it felt important to me to, to not feel afraid of, of being thought like of, of someone thinking I'm dumb. Right. Because I think that's a, that's a fear that's baked into a lot of writing. I think so. And I think like, you know, the, the kind of the, like the other side of that or an extension of that is that these, these performative narrations or whatever that happen when the cool thing is in effect is that you have writers who want to communicate how fucking smart they are. <laughs> like that's so much of, I mean, I don't mean to be dismissive. I just think there's a lot of that in the writer. And I say that as somebody you know, it's, I, I'm implicated too. It's not like sure. I'm above all this, but I think writers are often frustrated, smart people or something who might feel like outsider-ish or something and want people to know that they're, they've got good brains or something. And yeah, I think there's definitely something there. And I think part of that too is how it's like, um, you know, how it, how it feeds into itself. Like, you know, my experience in grad school is in linguistics, so I can't really speak to what an MFA is like, but I imagine a lot of it carries over where a big part of the education is being put in your place and being told that you're not anything and being set up for very specific beliefs about failure and success. You know, if you, if you, uh, if you go to, if you go to grad school for, you know, whatever, for a science or whatever, you, you go present a, a paper at a conference, you know, all the questions are just other professors trying to tear you down a little bit, trying to ask you why you didn't cite this one paper, why you didn't read this one book, you know, trying to show off what they know. And I think part of that comes from, you know, egotism, but also part of it is like fear. Sure. Like you see someone else sort of getting close to what you're doing. You want to sh keep them away. You want to shut them down. You want to <laughs> assert yourself over them. So I imagine that's, I assume that's probably true. And, you know, MFA programs, and those are the big feeding ground for where what gets marketed and published comes from. And so I'm sure there's a lot of this uh, baked into it where it's like, you know, my writing has to acknowledge all this other writing. I have to communicate that I've understood it. 
and that I can interpret it and I'm as smart as anyone else. And my book fits within the canon of all these important books. But yeah, that's just my read on it. And so I wanted to reject that a little bit. And in terms of like the depression that you were like uh, suffering through during at least some of the composition of this book, did it improve? Like as you got closer to the project <laughs> being done, did you write your way out of it? Is that even a way to put it? Uh, I was I was pretty past it when I started compiling this book. So I sort of think of this as sort of like a like a little capstone project on that where I it does incorporate a lot of stuff that I wrote when I was deeper in it or, or closer to coming out of it. But yeah, I, a lot of this was written with sort of a distance to it where, you know, I can look at my thought patterns and what they were before and have a different perspective on it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty hard to write when you're in the deep throes of a, <laughs> a dark place. You kind of have to have some positive energy happening to be creative, I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to do other stuff. I, I tried getting more into music when I was really in a bad place. And that has its own set of challenges for motivation and stuff. But, you know, I think it's... What, uh, were, the, what were those songs called? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there were just, there just a few songs. I um, My friend plays drums and we just recorded like seven songs. One of them was stupidly just like me listing off all the things that I studied in grad school and saying i don't care about them anymore <laughs> just like a stupid punk song uh, it was cathartic you know yeah whatever works <laughs> yeah and it sounds like you're in like a in-between place now creatively you don't you're not actively working on another book project right yeah i've got a, like a few things that i had started a while ago that are in various states but yeah every time i i open one of them up i'm like ah i don't really want to do this right now and then i put it away I, I'm sort of thinking I just need to start fresh with something else. Yeah. I think too, there's like always like the, the thing I always tell myself is I need input. Like if I'm mm. on just on the back end of a project, I should probably be reading a lot, you know, getting myself yeah. sort of filled up again with ideas and. Yeah. And I haven't been reading much because we just had a, we just had a baby in November. So. Oh, congratulations. Uh, so you're in the thick you. of it. You got chickens and a dog and a baby. <laughs> Yeah, I've got chickens, dogs, and kids. Yeah, so I'm. How many kids you got? No, uh, just two. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So between all that, it's like, yeah, I get, I get like maybe half an hour at night. It's like, where am I gonna spend that? You know, can I catch up on some emails? Can I play my guitar for ten minutes? Can I read a book? You right. Know, not right. much progress in any of them. I hear you. Well, <laughs> uh, congratulations on this one, and I hope you enjoy the process. I know it's been kind of out there for a little bit now, but I hope. Uh, Hope you're finding time to kind of appreciate the moment. I wish you the best with it, and I wish you the best with whatever comes next when it eventually emerges. Thank you. I appreciate that. And same to you. I'm looking forward to, uh, to how it goes for you. All right, you guys, there we go. That is Zach Smith, and his new story collection is called Everything is Totally Fine, available now from Moo Moo House. You can find Zach on the internet at zachsmith.net. You can also track him down on Twitter. His handle is at ZachSmithTweeto. There's also information over at the Moo Moo House website, moomoohouse.com. One more time, the story collection is called Everything is Totally Fine. Go get your copy immediately. Buy it where books are sold. 
The Other People podcast is offered freely. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the entire archive of this program is made available to you, the listener, free of charge. That's nearly 800 episodes, 800 in-depth conversations with today's leading authors, all available for free. It's a listener-supported show, and you can support the show right now over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make this quick and easy and painless for as little as a dollar a month. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month. Throw three, throw five, throw 20, throw whatever you can afford and help keep this show going over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I count on your support. So if you like the program, if you get something from it, if you're a regular listener, I hope you'll consider doing this. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. And you can get stuff, I forgot to mention that, as you go up the scale, you can get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription, I will wish you a happy birthday, etc., etc., over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to pre-order my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, you can do that at bradlisty.com. You can also RSVP and sign up for my book launch events over at bradlisty.com. Please join me. There's a small handful of events happening, and I would love to see you there. Did you know that I do an email newsletter? I do an email newsletter once a week. It is free. You can sign up for that at bradlisty.com or at this show's official website, otherppl.com. It is a list of things that I'm interested in, and it is an announcement of the latest podcast episode. It's pretty straightforward. You can sign up for it. I hope you'll do that. And I hope you'll stay tuned for the exclusive audio excerpt of my new book that is going to be dropping in this podcast feed on Sunday. Stay tuned. You guys will be the first to hear it. And I'm excited about that. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. It's a great way to listen. I'm telling you, there are app advantages. And... In case you were not aware, the entire archive of this podcast is available on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, please subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free. Just go to search, you know, go to YouTube and search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then hit the subscribe button. Free of charge, easy, and it helps the show. So why not do that? All right? Okay. I am uh, going to be podcasting, hopefully, next week. I will keep you posted in case my knee surgery gets in the way. But otherwise, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 